Whether you're moving in together for the first time. This can be your closet. Or you're a new parent to a little fur baby. Viva paper towels can help you maintain a clean home. They're two times more durable when wet compared to the leading value brand. So they clean like cloth, helping you pick up after your new pet in your new home. For an exceptional cloth-like clean, use Viva Towels. Visit vivatowels.com to learn more and start fresh with a clean feeling of home. And you're back on Right Now with Jim Dawes on the Mojo 5.0 Radio Network. Your daily journal of news, politics, and culture from an American nationalist perspective. Well, in this country, we are focused on the problems related to the coronavirus and its debilitating effects on our economy, as well as the unrest we see in our cities. But we've paid far less attention to the crises affecting our number one geopolitical foe, of course, China. Not only is China's economy suffering, but their crackdown on the Uyghurs and democratic freedoms in Hong Kong, as well as border conflicts with their neighbors, have exposed a repressive regime on the world stage. Add that now to biblical rains that threaten to break the Three Rivers Gorge Dam in Ube Province. Yes, that Ube Province. And you have the kind of failures and instability that threaten to destabilize the Chinese Communist Party and its dictator for life, Xi Jinping. To discuss this, we're joined now by Gregory R. Copley, president of the International Strategic Association and author of the new book, The New Total War of the 21st Century. You can get that at strategicstudies.org. Gregory, thanks for joining us. Delighted to be with you, Jim. So uh, I have to admit, I've been focused on uh, all of our domestic uh, troubles of late, and uh, I, I really didn't realize that the Three Rivers Gorge Dam, which is located upstream from uh, Wuhan, is uh, is uh, undergoing biblical rains and showing signs of instability and uh, and forcing the the communist regime to uh, to actually flood many of their own cities. Tell us what's well, going on. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's it's perhaps even worse than that. But uh, the the net result is you could say that the mandate of heaven, by which Chinese rulers have historically governed uh, China, is now over as far as the Chinese Communist Party is concerned. Uh, the uh, well, let's just deal initially with the the flooding and earthquakes which are are occurring this year uh, at levels which uh, are. Uh, historically unmatched. That is, they, they exceed um, recent written uh, records. So in some areas, these floods and, and uh, earthquakes and the combinations are worse than they've been for a century. Are earthquakes uh, but, actually affecting the Three Rivers Gorge Dam as well? Uh, well, yes, they are indirectly, and they're getting closer and closer. There was uh, some weeks ago, there was a 3.2 uh, Richter scale earthquake close uh, and a shallow one close to uh, the uh, uh, above the dam on the Yangtze River, uh, and uh, it caused landslides and so on into the into the river. All of these things start to compound it, and of course you've got a very unstable uh, ground environment there. Uh, you've got now uh, flooding affecting something like ninety seven percent of of the. Um, Chinese population, mainland Chinese population, although in the in a lot of the uh, grain growing areas in the north, we're, we're seeing uh, 
drought, which is which is another sign, if you like, of the pestilence. They've got the, right. not just drought, but they've also got the locust plague and the like. So this is really something which came at the wrong time for the Communist Party, and particularly for President Xi. Uh, the uh, the pressure on the on the Three Gorges Dam is now uh, way above anything which uh, was expected. Initially, the dam, when it was built, was claimed to be able to withstand a thousand year flood. Now, uh, it, it, it was completed about a decade ago. If, uh, am I correct? Yes, that, that's correct. Uh, but in fact, when uh, immediately after it was was finished with this claim of a, being able to cope with a thousand year flood, it, they, they then revised that to a five hundred year flood, to a hundred year flood, and now to well, we don't know. And now, what we're seeing is uh, uh, the fact that the outcomes of all of the corruption associated with that dam construction, which was to to save money, to, which was used to pay off many officials. Uh, they used inferior con concrete inferior uh, steel in, in its structures uh, and this was told to them at the time and uh, basically they were, they were told this is that's just a racist comment from foreign observers and uh, it's too late now anyway but the the concrete structures were not fixed into the bedrock uh, they uh, so they, they are also moving they're now moving when you saw a satellite picture uh, overhead uh, of the uh, Dam when it was first constructed, it was a nice straight line. Now it's it's like a jagged set of of teeth. Uh, the, the the blocks have moved. And and yesterday the Communist Party actually admitted that yes, there's been some movement in the big blocks of the dam, and yes, there has been some leakage. So the dam uh, is way above danger level, uh, as are the dams and water, waterways above. Uh, the, uh, the Three Gorges Dam in the rivers feeding into the Yangtze, uh, and so this, there's more to come. Now, if uh, if the the dam gives way, then it's, it's catastrophic. Obviously, not just for Wuhan, which is the major, the first major city downstream, but downstream from the Three Gorges Dam are also Beijing and Shanghai. You've got a, a floodplain there which contains about 400 million people, all of whom would be at Jeez. risk. So this is massive. So the collapse of the dam would be the end of the Communist Party. But you couple that with all of the other disasters. The are most the of their that, industries located across, along that uh, that path oh, as well? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you, you you're wiping out the uh, most of what remains of the already declining uh, Chinese GDP. Uh, they're, they're really in bad shape. Their, their economic decline began about a decade ago. So even when Xi Jinping uh, took office, he uh, was he took over literally just past the peak of the PRC economy. And since then, the whole myth of Chinese economic growth has been just that, a myth. They've, they've worked to con contrive artificial figures to, uh, to show a, an increase each year in GDP. But the reality is that it's been a very hollow GDP uh, created and it's been getting worse and worse uh, as, the, as the country has become economically uncompetitive. But then you have that coupled to the coronavirus outbreak from Wuhan and the fact that the Communist Party again suppressed information about that and um, that has uh, led to immense distrust, particularly now when the, the, the public no longer believes anything that the Communist Party says. So you've got. Uh, well, I remember. I remember when they brought this dam online. It was advertised mm -hmm. as the biggest dam in the world at the time. It was a. 
huge source of national pride. Now you're telling me it's just sitting on bedrock and not anchored into bedrock, and uh, its failure would be a major blow to the the psyche of of uh, China and the Chinese people, and uh, thoroughly discredit the Communist Party. That's uh, that's it in a nutshell. Apart from the, the actual physical damage which it would do to the population, oh to God. its ability to to sustain itself, uh, the the Chinese economy is now in a parlous situation. They've got food shortages starting this year. Uh, they neglected uh, to resolve their agricultural problems because they were just too overwhelming for the past couple of decades. And so they, they've gone on, a, on a, bin, a binge of increasing food importation. And as the urbanizing has occurred, and you've, we've moved in the last few decades from a 25% urbanization rate to about 58% now, uh, urban wealthier populations demand food, which is far more water intensive to produce. Protein. Pork, and, uh, yeah, yeah, pork and beef and the like. Uh, they also use more water. Uh, water. Uh, Hong Kong has got. Uh, sorry, um, China has got uh, some twenty percent of the world's population, seven percent of the world's water. Of that, they admit that twenty-five percent is polluted. In fact, it's about eighty percent, and uh, because the, the water table itself is polluted, which is why uh, you just don't get the agricultural productivity that they need or the quality. So, China's now becoming existentially dependent upon imported food in a way we haven't seen with a major power since the collapse of the Roman Empire. And yet, with all of these problems, internal problems, China is continuing to press conflicts on its border with India and uh, and uh, the South China Sea and even with Russia. Yeah. You would think that they would be a little bit more circumspect and uh, and and be more focused on internal crises. Uh, and yet they've uh, they've overextended themselves on the international front. Well, yes, and, and in fact, they're doing exactly what um, Lieutenant General Leopoldo Galtieri did when he was the last dictator of, of uh, Argentina in 1982 uh, to to basically get a, a win uh, to restore the prestige and uh, respect for the military government. He invaded the Falkland Islands without thinking of the consequences. Uh, it had Maggie Thatcher thrown in the towel and said, oh, I guess you won, that's yours, please take our Falkland Islands. He would have probably been seen as a successful leader and might have stayed in office another year or two. But when Britain reacted and rejected the Argentine invasion, that was the end of Galtieri. Now, we, we see President Xi in a similar situation where he is looking for that last-minute desperate gamble, but he's aware that a last-minute desperate gamble, like uh, an attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, as Japan did in 41, uh, or Galtieri did in the Falklands in 82, these are um, plagued with risk. He, he, he's sensible enough not to try to do that. So uh, now the, the uh, challenge he met on the um, border in Kashmir with, with Indian forces actually had some real strategic relevance because India last year did what she was not able to do in Hong Kong. In, in other words, India last year sent a million of its own troops to invade its own autonomous province of Kashmir, basically uh, as a pr preparatory to a strategic coup de main, a, a, you know, a major advantage against uh, China. Uh, the, what India is planning to do is to cut across uh, Azad Kashmir, which is Pakistani-controlled part of Kashmir, so that firstly it would cut China's land access to the Indian Ocean via uh, 
Kashmir and Pakistan. Secondly, it would put China into Central Asia as a trading partner flanking China to the west. So China had to confront that. But when the PLA actually wanted to test out the resolve of the Indian government at that recent clash uh, in Ladakh in in uh, Kashmir, the, the, the Indian response was... Yes, it's in the Himalayan area. The response was overwhelming. Uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi of India went up there and said, oh, look, we didn't put a million troops in here for nothing. Uh, you, want to, you want to try something, bring it on. Well, it would be much more difficult for China to project power through the Himalayas uh, and into Kashmir uh, than it is for India to defend against that. Um, so what we're going to see is now uh, China being outmaneuvered by India. Now, she had to do a few weeks ago was back down from that. So then he started to look at other areas where he could regain at least some stature, some prestige domestically, and that was to hint that, uh, okay, we've now got Hong Kong more or less under control, and we're now looking at, at Taiwan. So he started looking at how to invade some small sections of Taiwanese outlying islands, uh, mm. such as the Tongshu group, uh, about 120 kilometers southeast of, of Hong Kong. Is that what prompted the deployment of the new British uh, carrier group to, well, to the South China Sea? No, that'll come later. But but basically, everything is moving against them right now. The the response to everything, and, and Hong Kong was the, the big trigger point as far as the British were concerned. But the Brits had already committed to putting a, a carrier strike group into the Indo-Pacific region uh, as soon as it was ready, and that's going to be next year. You know, one of my great regrets of our current foreign policy is that we never capitalized on our uh, victory over the Soviet Union in the Cold War and brought Russia into the Western, um, you know, family of nations. And now in the aftermath of the the Russia hysteria in 2016, Mm -hmm. we've actually pushed them into the arms of China. And yet China and Russia have their own conflicts uh, in Siberia, where both of them claim major uh, territory in each other inside each other's borders. How do you think that that budding uh, alliance is going to play out? Well, it's not playing out very well. The the Russians and and uh, Chinese uh, have a, a great antipathy towards each other. They have strong rivalries. They each now have about a, a million square miles of territorial claims each against the other so and that's not going to go away uh when she uh, out of some desperation reacted to a, an announcement of the 160th anniversary of the founding of vladivostok recently uh they triggered a big thing saying well this is really chinese territory and so on well the russians re- responded to that very badly and as you say uh after reagan and thatcher left office we we saw george hw bush literally keep thinking of Russia, post-Soviet Russia, as though it were the Soviet Union, where in reality Thatcher and uh, and Reagan saw the nationalists in Russia as allies of the West, which they were, and that, by the way, included Boris Yeltsin, and it, it included um, Putin at that time as well, who was uh, one of these closet nationalists there working within the system in uh, a group called Pamyat, which means memory, because they never forgot the Russian nation. It's we just take- such a tragedy that we never mm-hmm. uh, capitalized on uh, all of the trillions of dollars that we spent during the Cold War. We finally yep. won it. And then, uh, you know, these foreign policy elites, educated or Ivy League schools, didn't recognize the opportunity and seize upon it. Either that or they were just uh, feathering their own nest by keeping the uh, the, the conflict alive. I, I don't know. 
Well, it, it was smugness, it was ignorance, and this goes very much back to George H.W. Bush, Bush 41, uh, in that he said, we must, we now have the, the peace dividend to, to spend. So essentially, they took their, they took their eye off the ball, they, they stopped investing in defense instead of doing what they needed to do, which was to take defense thinking as well as defense spending to uh, a, a new level where it would create uh, preparedness for the next type of war, which we now see emerging, this new type of total war, which is total amorphous warfare, which it includes the the uh, subversion of your adversary societies. And that look, what we see is uh, Beijing now trying to take advantage of the uh, coronavirus epidemic. They're using that as a, as a means to undermine President Trump. Here's the reality. What, what uh, she thought would happen is that he could help remove Trump from office and thereby alleviate the main source of pressure against his, his government. Reformation uh, of the trade deals. Yeah, and, and uh, basically what's going to happen is that the crises are, are mounting for Xi in advance of the, the U.S. election. But nonetheless, the, the Communist Party of China has as its main goal the support of President, uh, presidential aspirant uh, Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. I mean, basically, that, as far as the Chinese Communist Party is concerned and, and Xi himself, basically the, the objective is get Trump out of office and get, give us some breathing space. The fact that, that she might not last even that long uh, is... Wouldn't that is, be delicious? Yeah, well, what's happening now in, in about uh, a week or two at the uh, uh gathering, which is the annual secret conclave of the, the Communist Party leadership, the the real uh, top leadership in the Politburo and the like, is uh, that they have summoned Xi and uh, Premier Li Keqiang to, to that. And basically, uh, we we may see that they will not survive that little conclave. They may be forced to retire. They may be forced to just do as the Communist Party leadership wants, and that would basically have to be now, because they've got no other resource, they may have to pull, pull back into a domestic-only uh, focus so that they can control the Chinese population and, and, if you like, desist from any foreign adventurism. And that's the end, then, of the, the great Chinese uh, rise as a strategic power. How the world, India, how well, the worm has turned. It was only a couple of years ago where Xi was, uh, um, had the whip hand and having himself um, appointed as uh, a premier for life of the Chinese Communist mm. Party. Is that right? Well, that's right. They saw him as, as someone who could galvanize the country, but they also saw him uh, within the the Communist Party elite, as the only member of or presidential aspirant or and uh, and leadership aspirant who didn't have a power base, so you didn't have uh, Zhang Zemin's faction fighting another faction, for example, uh, for for the for, for who to nominate for the next presidency. They 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 were happy to put in Xi uh, Xi Jinping because he didn't have a power base and therefore didn't wasn't answerable to Zhang or any of the others. Which, So she then immediately tried to make the People's Liberation Army his power base. In reality, the PLA made him their puppet. Um, and then, and but the, the reality is that the party which controls the PLA ultimately uh, will, uh, you know, can do what they like with Xi, and he is not as powerful as he wants. He's used his position to try to get rid of as many opponents as possible, but he hasn't been able to touch the real power 
corps, which are meeting him, uh, summoning him to Badaha, uh in the next uh, couple of weeks. I would love to have you back after that conclave and ask you uh, what how, how you read its outcome. Gregory Copley, I, I really appreciate having you on. Uh, if you could hang on uh, after the break, I'd love to talk to you about your new book, The New Total War of the 21st Century, if you have the time. I do indeed. Stand by. Santa's dropping off way more than you expected this year. Thanks to Xfinity, the whole family can enjoy great coverage and fast, reliable internet speed up to gig, all at a great value. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. This episode is sponsored by Schwann's.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm, good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods, like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwans.com backslash yum for details. Well, we're talking to Gregory Copley, president of the International Strategic Studies Association and author of the new book, The New Total War of the 21st Century. You can get the book at strategicstudies.org. That's strategicstudies.org. Gregory, uh, just tell us uh, what this book covers. Uh, how many books have you written now? I, I know you've got <laughs> quite a few. Yeah, this is my 36th book. 36 actually. books. Uh, mostly on on uh, strategic issues and strategic philosophy and some on aviation and the like, uh, but generally looking at geopolitics, grand strategy and the like. Uh, so I've been at, at this for over 50 years. So, you know, that's, that's the key. Uh, you, you stick around long enough. Some, some things stick in your mind, but this, this book uh, really looks at how the, how strategic warfare has changed and is changing and will change through the 21st century and, and why uh, the, the Chinese actually learned what was going on in the 20th century, learned from the collapse of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in 1990-91, and reshaped their approach. So uh, in 1999... Is it it fair to say that when you're talking about the the new total war of the 21st century, you're talking about a um, post-conventional military type of struggle? It is indeed. I mean, conventional military confrontation forms a part of the equation, but a much smaller part than you you would like. This is why it it, it was clear that, for example, General Madison, General Kelly, when they were uh, initially in the administration with President Trump, didn't get what President Trump was trying to do. He was maneuvering in a grand strategic sense. He used the military as a, as a negotiating tool, uh, particularly with the North Korean situation and with Iran to push them into a, into a, a, a corner. He, he had uh, no intention unless provoked to use the U S military for kinetic conflict, because he knows that's expensive. He also knows uh, that when you use your great instruments of strategic prestige that once used they lose their potency to a degree which was why he saw and and we also and i pointed it out uh, in stuff which i gather he's read uh that 
the use of, for example, carrier strike groups uh, to actually conduct military operations, B1s, B2s and so on in Iraq and Afghanistan, actually diminished their prestige. Uh, once you use it, people say, oh, is that all it is? We, we, we survived that. Uh, we thought we were all going to be obliterated and here we are, we're still around despite the B1s and B2s and you know, those Americans just think they can throw money around. and Well, you know, nothing diminishes your uh, prestige, uh, your military prestige, worse than occupying a, uh, a, you know, a godforsaken country for 20 years and getting bogged down and not learning the lessons of history that, um, that Afghanistan is the place that empires go to die. Well, uh, well it's, that's, the, that's the case. Now, you can do some very uh, important things in Afghanistan, but if you go about it the right way and you've got to learn from history, uh, you also have to have something which no U.S. administration until President Trump had, which was to have a goal, to have missions, to have a strategy. Why do you want to be somewhere and what do you wish to achieve? Uh, and wh- what we saw after literally almost two decades in Afghanistan is we still don't know why we're there. We've actually lost the U.S. advantage, which it gained after the Cold War, uh, in influencing and befriending Central Asian states and wooing them away from both uh, the People's Republic of China and Russia. Uh, So essentially, uh, we, we had on a plate the gift of friendship and, and uh, hope from the, the five key Central American, Central Asian stands, the, uh, the, the, the countries which had been part of the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire before that, uh, they were delighted to be able to work with the West. And the, the, the goal should have been not to punish people for uh, the World Trade Towers attack, which was, by the way, not the Afghans at all. It was, of course, Al-Qaeda. It was the Saudi-linked group. Oh, I always believe we should have most definitely go in and, and get uh, Al-Qaeda and, and kill bin Laden, but we even made a hash of that when we hired yeah. local warlords to blast them over into the one nuclear-armed Muslim nation in the world where we could not follow. Well, uh, the, and the by the way, the Pakistanis warned the U.S. about that. The Pakistanis were adamant, saying, look, do not go about this the way you, you're advocating let's do this more sensibly, let's flush them out. And and, uh, they were adamant uh, that the U.S. uh, was going about it the wrong way and inviting disaster, not only for the United States, but for Pakistan. And that's been the case. It brought the war into Pakistan uh, and brought them the Islamists, which they themselves hate. Uh, So we've actually blown all that. Uh, uh, One of the things that we've seen in the West is how easily and without thought we we dispense with allies uh people who are willing to work with us and help us but instead we want to blame our allies for for our own failings gregory we've just got a couple of minutes left and i want to i want to ask you where do you see the american strategic advantage in these uh these new uh, fronts in the uh the book new total war of the 21st century that you talk about well, uh, the United States has the strategic depth, and, and I mean that in, in sociological terms and in resources and in geography, uh, which which really outmatch anything uh, in the world. So the United States has that potential. However, in order to have that those assets be used as, as, as in, in building strategic strength or rebuilding strategic strength, the U.S. has to overcome the internal civil war which is now underway, this polarization of society between urban globalists, utopianists, and and nationalists on, on the other side. Uh, 
right now we, we are not even seeing that an election in November will resolve that. Whoever wins, uh, it's not going to be or resolved. Or if we even know who wins. <laughs> well, yes, and in, in fact, we're seeing this this polarized society, which we are not addressing. One of the advantages of China, had it come out and, and actually directly attacked the United States in Allah Japan in forty one, would have been the, the would have galvanized all Americans to understanding that there was an existential threat to the entire country. Right now. The urban globalists think that they can just continue their path without having to acknowledge the rest of the country. And that actually is becoming the fatal disease, which is challenging the U.S. Gregory R. Copley, president of the International Strategic Studies Association and author of the new book, The New Total War of the 21st Century. You can get it today at strategicstudies.org. That's strategicstudies.org. Gregory, thank you so much for this. I hope you'll come back and join us again when you can. Looking forward to it, Jim, anytime. Thank you. Well, that takes us to the end of this edition of Right Now with Jim Dawes. I want to thank you for joining us and invite you back here again tomorrow right here on the Mojo 5.0 Radio Network. We'll talk to you then. Whether you have your own bathroom or you share one with your family, a little extra help keeping the bathroom sink, counter, and mirror clean goes a long way. And Viva Paper Towels are for the long haul. They're two times more durable when wet compared to the leading value brand. And they clean like cloth, helping you keep the surfaces in your bathroom dry and fingerprint and toothpaste free. For an exceptional bathroom clean, there's Viva Paper Towels. Visit vivatowels.com to learn more. Need an extra hand with dinner? Just ask your connected home device to fill your pasta pot. And Delta Faucet Voice IQ technology will fill it with the perfect amount of water. Visit deltafaucet.com slash voice IQ to discover more.